0: Now I'd like to begin reading in verse number one, Job chapter number 11, verse number one. And I want us to notice a question that is asked in our text this morning, and I want us to think about it through the prism of the Word of God. Job chapter 11, verse number one, the Bible says, Then answered Zophar the Namathite, and said, Should not the multitudes of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak, and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know the measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea let 's pray together, Father, we love you this morning. thank you for what you have done heretofore, Lord, in the lives of our church people in our ministries, Lord, we don't deserve a single ounce of it, but you in your grace and mercy have chosen to bless us and favor us. And Lord, we're just so thankful this morning that we get to be a child of God sitting in church on a Sunday morning worshiping You. Lord, so many places we ought to be. Lord, we ought to be drunk down at the bar. We ought to be laying down in the county jail. We ought to be laying with our neck broke on the side of the road. Or we ought to be in hell this morning. But by Your mercy and grace, You have brought us to this place. And we're careful to praise You and thank You for it. Now, I pray that You'd speak to hearts and that You'd glorify Your Son in everything that's done today, for He's certainly worthy of the glory. Lord, we love You. Thank You for loving us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, our text that we have read this morning is found in the book of Job. If you know a little bit about the book of Job, you know it centers around the suffering experience of a saint by the name of Job whose life falls to pieces in a matter of minutes. He goes from being one of the most wealthy and, and prosperous and powerful and influential men in the entirety of the known world at that time to being a broken, hollow shell of that former individual laying in the middle of an ash pile with his head shaved with sackcloth upon him, grieving and trying to figure out God. And through that process, he has a group of friends that come to help him. And, uh, you know, they're sort of like the government. You know, they show up to help and break everything. And uh, these friends show up to help and they want to encourage Job. But the problem is they don't try to encourage him. They try to examine him. They don't try to give him confidence. They instead try to give him criticism. And the next several chapters of the book of Job, 20, 30 chapters of the book of Job are spent with his friends picking apart his trial and trying to understand what's going on in his life. Can I just give you a little piece of of counsel? Here's what Job said about his friends. He said, miserable comforters are y'all. Can I tell you this? Hey, I promise whoever you're trying to encourage, they're already trying to figure out their problems. They don't need you doing it for them they're already trying to figure out why everything fell to pieces. They don't need you showing up and trying to do it for them. You know, one of the things you can do is just show up and just say, I I, I don't understand it, I can't fix it, but I'm here to cry with you and I'm here to let you know I love you and I'm here to do anything that I can do for you. Many a burden has been made heavier by someone Monday morning quarterbacking a person's problems. Job's friends arise and they do that very thing. They add to his burdens. But one of the questions as I've studied the book of Job that has always arrested me is this thought. When we have these sweeping portions of text that are quotations from men who have a wrong approach and a wrong perspective on Job's troubles, are we only to understand those in the context of that history? Or is there in fact wisdom to be found in some of the things that Job's friends say, though they may not be being applied in a wise way in Job's situation, is their wisdom in what they say. I would give this short answer before I move on to our message today, that as with everything in the Word of God, it's to be taken into context. Uh, if you don't know your Bible in context, you don't know your Bible at all. So I believe it's appropriate to consider it in the context. By the same token, I think as we read the words of these men, allow the Spirit of God to guide us, we will find some wisdom in some of the things that they say. Now, there's basically a few different ideas about Job's problems that his friends have. Uh, one of the ideas that they have is Job just isn't spiritual enough. Uh, he is uh, not uh, transcendent in his concept of God. Another one has the idea that Job has some hidden sin in his life. Another one has the idea that, well, God just does this and, and you can't expect God to do anything but this because that's just the way God acts. And A whole myriad of insufficient answers. But a man in our text by the name of Zophar picks up on a thread that I think is important today. He asks a question in verse number 7 that is fascinating to me. He's dealing with Job's problem, and, and he's trying to anyways, and Job is trying to understand God. He's trying to figure God out and what God is doing. And Zophar asks this question. He says, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Spend a little time thinking about Zophar's question. He does not ask if God can ultimately be known. He does not ask if there is a way to understand God. But he's very descriptive in what he asks. He says, can you by searching Find out God. And I began to think about that word searching and what he means by that. At this time in history, in human history, there, as far as we know, is no written down record of God's words to humanity. Moses would later on compile the first five books of the Bible. So when he talks about searching, he's not talking about studying the Scripture. And of course, at this time, the Spirit of God did not indwell men, though they were believers. That didn't happen until the New Testament. So he's not talking about leaning upon the Holy Spirit and his understanding. And the form of worship that existed at this time was very rudimentary. So he's not talking about looking in the Old Testament form of worship when he talks about searching. So what then does Zophar mean? I think he means, can a man, through his logic and through his rationale, through the intelligence that he is just naturally equipped with, apart from any revelation of God, can a man know who God is, understand who God is, and find him out unto perfection just through thinking hard enough about God? Now, you say, preacher, well, that's interesting. I appreciate the little Sunday school lesson. But what does that have to do with our lives today? Well, I would say this. We have a world today that is still bought into this misnomer that God through intellect and intuition can be found out and understood. Can I give you the modern word for it? It is the word philosophy. Philosophy. And the question that Zophar is asking is very simple. Can a man through philosophical means, Can he just think hard enough, deduce hard enough, and somehow he'll understand who God is? I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer this morning. The answer is no. God cannot be found out merely through human intellect. And I thought about the situation we're in in the world today. You know, the devil has always put false choices in front of people. He has always tried to say, you either go with God and you'll have misery and heartache and suffering and trouble, or you can go my direction, you'll have nothing but good times and pleasure. You know, that's never been true. Uh, It's always been that peace and contentment and happiness comes uh, at the hand of God. I ran into a fella uh, just yesterday who used to be an addict, used to have a very broken life, and I I saw this fella in the Walmart, and uh, I could tell right when I saw him. I could see a light in his eyes. He had put weight on his bones, and and I could see him, and and I called his name. When I saw him, I almost didn't even recognize him, but but he looked at me, and you know how you do in Walmart, right? Uh, You look at them, and then they look at you. It's you. And that's going to end in one of two things, either a hug or a fist fight, one of the two at the Walmart. And uh, thankfully, it, it didn't end in a fist fight. Uh, we looked at him. I called his name. I said, is that you? He said, it is. He said, I've been two and a half years clean and sober. He said, I just got to pray about it every day. He said, I gave my life over to God and I've been two and a half years now clean and sober. And he said, I didn't know what living was when I was living like that. <laughs> And I said, isn't that exactly right? I said, the devil tells you that all the life is there in a bottle, there in a needle, there in them pills, there in uh, the bed of some stranger. But that isn't where life is. Life is in the Lord. He gives life and gives it more abundantly. Uh, The devil is a liar. And he sets up false choices... For mankind, And I began to think about, in this discussion about philosophy, about God, about all these sort of big concepts, I began to think about the lies that the devil tells us. You know, one of the lies that the devil tells us is that the, the conflict is uh, between faith and reality. The world has the idea that faith is nothing but religious fairy tales that men tell themselves so that they can go to sleep at night. And that when a person exercises faith in the Lord, really they are checking out of reality. They are disconnecting from their responsibilities. And they do so because they are too weak-minded to face the hardships of life and reality. But you know that's a lie of the devil. It's not a choice between faith and reality. You know why? Because faith operates in the realm of reality. Faith has the ability to take a man's heart who's living in a real world with real problems, with real brokenness, and change that man's heart and life when he puts his faith in Jesus Christ and give him the strength as my old buddy that I saw in Walmart yesterday who's living a new reality. Hey, the devil would have kept him in chains the rest of his life if he could have. But that boy woke up one day and said, I don't have to choose between faith and reality. Faith can change my reality. He put his faith in the Lord and it changed his reality. Then let me go a step further and say this, that faith is not a blind grope in the darkness. It's not a reach. It's not a plunge off of, off of a cliff unseen. But rather, faith is predicated on the reality of what God's Word has showed us is true. Uh, listen, I don't have to close my eyes to trust in God. I don't have to pretend the world is not what it is to trust in God. I don't have to shut my ears to this world to trust in God. I can face full on who and what this world is and see that my faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So uh, they'll say, well, if you, if you put your faith in the Lord, you're just a religious fanatic. You're, you're delusional. You're living in a, in a false reality. But that's not true. Faith and reality are really not at conflict with each other. And then here's a second thing the devil will say. He'll say it's faith versus education. That faith is for those that are small-minded. That that faith is just the drug that those that are too ignorant and too uneducated uh, to wean themselves off of, that they placate themselves on. That when a person gets educated, they're going to give up their faith. You know, I found an interesting thing. I remember years ago, I went and sat in a friend's philosophy class on the collegiate level. I don't know why I did that. I guess it was better than getting a root canal. But for whatever reason, and I, and now I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I sat in a friend's philosophy class and I listened to this uh, first year freshman intro to philosophy professor get up and go through his spiel. And you know what it was all entirely and completely focused on was trying to diseducate and uneducate the children regarding the faith that their parents had tried to instill in them. Let me tell you something. The modern collegiate industrial complex goes to great lengths to try to eradicate faith from young people. It's not that there's a level playing field and you just the smarter you get, the more you realize that that you don't need God. No, my friend, the smarter you get, the more you realize you do need God. Bible tells us Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. And the wiser he got, the more he realized he needed God. So it's not a question of faith versus education. I'm glad you don't have to be educated to get born again. I would have never got in. But it's not really a conflict between faith and education. And then here's what the devil says. Well, really what it is, it's faith versus science. We hear that all the time today. Uh, We we were told for years that a certain uh, crowd was the party of science until the science didn't say what they wanted it to say. And then all of a sudden they trademarked science and then uh, listed it with a patent and decided they owned it and changed it and warped it and corrupted and perverted it to make it say anything that they wanted it to say. And we're told today, y'all got quiet, you all right? Oh, some of y'all just don't know what I'm talking about. That's what it is, right? No, we live in a day where uh, science is being used as a political weapon, not the general j- truthful pursuit of what is true and real. Hey, you know what the old-time scientists... You, you say, who are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about people like, uh, like Isaac Newton. You know what they called science? They called it the, the study of the signature of God. The study of the signature of the Creator. Uh, there is what the Bible calls a science falsely so-called. Listen, I- any science that disregards the reality of a Creator is not genuine, legitimate science operating in good faith. It begins predicated on a denial of an obvious reality. But when you consider science for what it really is, the study of the signature of the Creator, just looking and saying, what has God created around us? You know what you'll find? That for you to pursue science in legitimate means, it's going to take faith in the first place. So it's not really a question of faith versus science. So what then is the conflict? Well, we've already mentioned it, but really it comes down to this. The real conflict is between faith and philosophy. Are we going to believe what God says about himself or are we going to believe what we think about God? Are we going to believe the things that God has revealed to us about himself or are we going to believe the things that our intuition, our inclination and our disposition tell us God should be? This is the question that Zophar is asking. The book of Job speaks to this conflict and points us to the prevailing ideal. We don't come to know God through philosophy. Rather, we come to know Him through faith. And three thoughts are used in laying this truth before us. I want you to notice them with me this morning, and then we'll be done. And We're not going to take this, this text in order. I want us to look at it instead, one portion, that, the very end of it first, and then we'll come back and pick up some other things. First, I want you to think with me. About the vastness of the separation between who God is and between who man is. Can I tell you the main problem with man figuring out God without God showing himself to man? You know the main problem with it is that man and God are so vastly different. The problem is you can't understand him because you ain't him. I can't understand him because I aren't him. Uh, The reality is I could try to intuit and understand. I found this to be true with my kids. I have two sons. One of them is a total and utter mystery to me. The other one is like watching myself in miniature form walk around this planet. The other day, uh, he, and if you don't know which ones I'm talking about, Lawrence, man, he's like his mama, and he's as much a mystery as his, uh, to me as his mama is. She understands him. He'll do stuff, and it makes perfect sense to her. And she'll get frustrated with Sco because he does stuff and she doesn't understand. She'll say, I don't understand what this child's doing. I'll say, I do. I understand exactly what he's doing. The other day, he is getting out of the bathtub and he—he he, uh, we had told him. Mama was cooking supper and we had told him. We said, now you stay here and don't get out of the bathtub. You just sit there and play. I was sitting right in the other room and and he normally he's fine doing that. He sits in place. And then here in a little while he hollers He said, Mama, I'm done. And Mama said, well, hold on a minute. Don't get up. Let me let me get this chicken fried and I'll be in there. Hold on one minute. And here in a second we heard. Wah! And went in there. He had done not listened because that's what he does. And he had fell and busted his chin on the bathtub. And, and he had blood, Wah! you know, and Mama's. And, and we got him bundled up and everything. And now if you were to look on his little bitty chin. You'd find the cutest little scar right there. You know what you'd find if you looked on my little chin? Right up under there, you'd find where a little boy about Schofield's age fell down the torpedo steps of the torpedo slide at his school when he was about his age and split his chin wide open. And now we have matching scars. I can understand Him because I understand Him. We're like each other. You know the biggest problem with you just trying to intuit your way to who God is? And hey, I ain't just talking about lost people today. I'm talking about saved people today. The problem with you thinking God is made in your image is it's not true. He's not made in your image. You're made in His image. And then that image has been marred by sin. You can't intuit your way to who God is. You don't have the intuition. Your intuition is going in the wrong direction from who and what God is. And so the vastness of the separation. Now think about a couple thoughts with me. Number one, think about the proposition of searching for God. Verse number seven. Think about the question he asked. And it basically could be summarized in two thoughts. The first is this. Can he be correctly discovered? He says, canst thou by searching find out God? As we've already said, it's an impossibility because we don't have the tools in our heart and in our mind. We don't empathize. We don't relate. Hey, even it's for salvation to be procured, it wasn't that man was made like God. It was that that God robed himself in the flesh of man and walked amongst us so he might be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Mankind, if he had been trying to get to God, could have never got to God. You know why? Because we couldn't correctly find him out. Paul dealt with this on Mars Hill when he went down the long list of pagan deities uh, that the uh, Greeks had had concocted and devised of worship. And all of them, it's interesting. If you look at those old ancient Greek and Roman gods, every one of them, here's what they'd do. They'd take some attribute of mankind, usually something deplorable and vicious and cruel, and then they would, almost like they took a line and drew it all the way out through the universe and expanded it to a great magnitude and then called it God. So they'd have a God of lust. But really all he was was a parody, an outsized picture of the lust they had in their own heart. They'd have a God of of, of greed. They'd have a God of jealousy. They'd have a God of all these different things. But really all they were was making God in their image and then blowing him up to the size of the universe. Can I tell you how good our God is? He did the exact opposite of that. He took a God that is perfect immaculate, impeccable, omniscient, omnipresent, and and absolutely eternal. And then he condensed himself to the span of a virgin's womb and walked amongst mankind. Instead of taking what man was and blowing him up, he took what God was and shrunk him down so that mankind could see who what God is. Uh, You see... The question he's asking is this, can you can you find him out correctly? And the problem is this, we don't have the tools to do so because we are flat out so unlike him. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God, whatever you would do, bank on it, God would do something different and better. Whatever you in the natural energy of your flesh would do, that's why we have to mortify self to walk in the Spirit of God because self is never just going to do what God would want on its own. The problem, we can't intuit it. He cannot be correctly discovered. But then he asks this, canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Now somebody's going to say, well, now wait a minute, preacher. Mankind is created in the image of God. So of course there's certain things we can look at and we can see that there's sort of shadows of the character and personality of God in mankind. For instance, God loves and and man loves and, and God hates certain things and man hates certain things. And I would grant you that it may be possible to see some shadows. Even looking at creation, we can look up and the heavens declare His handiwork. But here's the problem. All that may give us glimpses, but it never gives us the full picture. It gives us shadows, but it never gives us the substance. Here's the problem. Could you get some idea that there is a God and something about Him just by thinking about it? Well, probably you could, but you couldn't get enough to save you and to cause you to be born again. That's why the Bible says that uh, when man, uh, through wisdom, knew not God, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. Uh, uh, God could have, through man's intuition, tried to shine a light. In fact, I'd say this, there was a time He did. And you know what happened? When When He sought to, just through man's consciousness and conscience, reveal Himself to mankind, it didn't take very long. Six chapters of the Bible. And the Bible says that the imagination of every man's heart was only evil continually. God shined a light into man's consciousness. You know what man did? He blotted out the light. And through wisdom, man has no ability to come to know God in and of himself. And that's why God's chosen the foolishness of preaching. You say, preacher, I can think about it and get some ideas about who God is. Well, maybe some ideas. But here's the problem. You cannot thoroughly discover who He is. If mankind could do it on his own, God wouldn't have sent a Savior. If mankind could do it on his own, God wouldn't have revealed himself in the person of Christ. So we see the proposition here. But then notice the problem with searching for God. Look at verse number 8. You say, preacher, why, why is it a problem? Why can I not do that? Why do I have to read the Bible to know who God is? Why do I, why do I have to listen to preach and know who God is? Why, why do I have to listen to the Spirit of God? Well, here's why. Look at verse 8. He says this, it is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. There's three things that he deals with here, and I want you to notice them in course. Number one, here's the problem with searching for God. Here's the problem through man's intelligence, man's intuition, through what we would call philosophy in pursuing after God, is he is higher than man's virtue. Notice how he says it. It, what is it? Well, knowing God unto perfection. It is as high as heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, when we talk about something being high, metaphorically, we're talking about something being morally superior, something being of a greater plane, something, here's the big $10 word we'd use, something being transcendent. He's saying, here's the problem. God is higher than we can transcend to. And then he asks this question, what canst thou do? Here in a moment, he's going to ask what you know. But at first, he says, what canst thou do? You know the problem with a man trying to work his way to heaven? is One, he can't find heaven. Two, even if he could, he couldn't get there by trying to work his way there. Uh, Here's the problem. You say, now, preacher, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start living better. And I'm going to be a good person. That's great, man. That's wonderful. I'm proud for you. What you going to do about them old sins? Let's try that with the bank. I I have decided today that I am no longer going to go into debt. From this moment forward, I declare myself to be debt-free. I won't spend another penny. I won't put it on a credit card. I I won't borrow it from the bank. I am debt-free. Now, forget about all them old debts. Let's see how that works. Yeah, yeah, Visa's going to be calling you. Mortgage place is going to be calling you and they're going to say, hey listen, I'm, I'm glad you have, I'm glad you've been converted to Dave Ramsey, but you're going to have to pay your bills, friend. You got debt that you need to deal with. Well, it's no different with a person's sin debt. They say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leap. I'm going to be a new person. Well, the problem is, what are you going to be with them old debts? What are you going to do with that old sin debt? Here's the problem. Even if you could do that, you still can't attain to the righteousness of God. The problem is mankind is morally broken, fatally flawed. There is no hope. There is no help in and of himself. It is himself that is the problem in the first place. It is the brokenness and depravity of man's condition that man's seeking to rectify through self-righteousness. Stop and think about how nonsensical that is. A man that's broken and sinful and rotten and stained and tainted and corrupt decides he's going to fix that by no longer being those things. A sick person might as well decide they're going to fix their sickness by deciding to be healthy. But the reality is you can't fix your own brokenness in and of yourself. Somebody's going to have to wash your sins clean away. So he's higher than man's virtue. But then notice this. He says this, deeper than hell, what canst thou know? I would say number two, he is deeper than man's experience. Experience, delusionally enough in our world, has a certain premium placed upon it. We think of there being value in a person having experience in life. I find this to be true. Only those without experience, laud experience. Most of the time, people that have experience would a lot rather learn it from somebody else's experience than from their own experience. But we live in a world today that for a person to be seasoned and a man of the world and have experienced all these things, be very cosmopolitan, is a very noble thing, very very diverse in their perspective and worldview and knowing and taking in, sweeping in all these different ideals and all these different things. And and that's a very, don't you, diversity is our strength. Don't you know that? We're living in a world today where it's the greatest attribute that a person can have. You know the problem is? You can't by experience know who God is because you can't get to Him and live the life of God yourself in the first place. No man has ever apart from God been able to discern who God is in and of Himself. There's no life experience that's going to make you able to know who God is. He doesn't dwell in the experiences of man. He dwells in the spheres of glory. And only by Him showing Himself to mankind can He be known. He's deeper than man's experience. You can go through this world and experience everything. Hey, listen, you can travel across the world. Hey, go see far-flung villages. Go eat bugs with savages. You do anything you want to do. But it's not going to show you who God is. He's deeper than man's experiences. But then notice this. Look at the next phrase, verse 9. The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. He's broader than man's comprehension. You don't have it. I don't have it in me to understand fully who He is. Our our brain is not big enough. Our, our, Our awareness is not strong enough. Our consciousness is not robust enough. In and of ourselves, if God poured every bit of who He is on an unregenerate mind, it'd break. He's bigger than what we can comprehend. Your imagination would never reach as far. You can't imagine the kind of mercy that He has. You can't imagine the kind of love that He has. You can't imagine the kind of holiness that he has. It's longer than you can get to, it's broader than you can wrap your arms around. I must hasten. Notice here the vastness of the separation. But then let's go back to what he first says. Verse 2. Zophar, when he begins all of this, now, he's directing this at Job, but there is a broader application. And notice what he says in verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, us not the multitude of words be answered? Now, he's talking about the things that Job has said. Job has been defending himself, has been answering his own cause. And Zophar, believing him to be wrong, he says, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, Shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. So here's the problem with philosophy. Number one is the vastness of the separation. Man at his best state cannot even come close to knowing God, even in the lowest apprehension. But there's a second problem. Man is rarely at his best state. The problem with philosophy as, a, as, a, as an art, as a practice, as a pursuit, it is completely broken in its purpose in the first place. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, and this has always stuck with me he said philosophy is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. It's not the pursuit of answers, it's the pursuit of questions. Now listen, God's not against answers. And God's not against us using our mind. In fact, I sort of think He prefers it. But understanding that we can't comprehend God apart from the Word of God is key to us having a relationship with God in the first place. And so Zophar, he points to the the flawed nature of philosophy. And he points to three things. Notice verse 2, number 1. He says the deficiency of philosophy. He looks at Job and he says, Job... What have you got when you have pleaded your own cause? And he basically lays out two things that philosophy must be for it to have any value. Two things that if philosophy is going to be, it has to have these. For instance, mathematics. Mathematics has no value if it doesn't give the right answer mathematics has no value if it cannot be proven and shown why that conclusion was come to. We could go down the line. Science, if the experiments are not uh, able to be replicated, and if it doesn't disclose something about the nature, then it's not really science. Well, what about philosophy? Well, two things. Number one, it must be rational. He says, should not the multitude of words be answered? Now, he's talking about two men in an argument. And he's saying, if one man makes a point, That point only means something if it cannot be answered. You know the main problem with philosophy is it's irrational. It's not predicated on what we know around us and experience and know of the known universe, but rather it is predicated on lies and tissue paper. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it has certain ideals about... Uh, for instance, the existence of God. They would say this. A philosopher would say that you cannot possibly know for sure whether there's a God or not because that God could be a figment of your own imagination. Here's the question they would say. How do you know we ain't all a brain in a jar sitting on a shelf somewhere? You heard that, Jim? I mean, if you've ever, if you've took intro to philosophy, you've heard that, I promise. How do you know you ain't a brain in a jar on a shelf somewhere? That's about time you walk up and smack them right across the jaw and say, could a brain have smacked you? But really, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, it is a flawed argument for two reasons. One, because that assumes that the human mind would do things that would be disconsonant with its own perspective in the first place. You know how I know that? Life's too hard for me to be a brain in a jar somewhere. If I was a brain in a jar somewhere, I'd have the nicest jar on the shelf. My life would have no problems whatsoever. I'd have no inner crises. I'd never experience anything that was difficult to compute. I'd never have problems that confuse me and bewilder me. All of those things, uh, because they would subscribe to the theory of evolution and the idea that people are only getting stronger and better and tougher and smarter and all these different things, would have eradicated and flushed out any of those uh, computational errors in the first place. The very fact that we can consider ourselves, our place in the universe, the idea of a creator, and whether or not we are in a righteous condition with him shows me that I'm not a brain in a jar somewhere. On and on we could go, talking about the flaws in basic philosophical arguments. But can I just go ahead and give you the cliff notes? You know the problem with philosophy? You know why it's broken? You know why it is valueless? Because it does not accomplish what it sets out to do in the first place. It purports to be rational, but you must suspend all ration and logic to adhere to it in the first place. It's part of the reason they only get college kids to agree with it. must be rational, but it's not. And then notice what he says. Should a man full of talk be justified? Now, there's a difference between when he talks about being answered and being justified. And when he talks about being answered, he's saying somebody ought to speak up and test the veracity, the, the truth of the... But when he talks about being justified, he's saying this. How does it bear out in life? In other words, it would, we'd say this It must be rational. Number two, it must be fruitful. Philosophy's no good if it doesn't speak to the greater needs of the human condition. You know the problem with philosophy? It can't give a man peace. It can't give a man hope. It can't take a bottle out of a drunkard's hands. It can't take a needle out of an addict's arm. You won't find any missions run by the philosophers. Uh, You won't find any great tent meetings held by philosophers. Uh, You'll find those only of people that believe in the Word of God, only of people that want to point towards hope in Calvary. Here's the problem. You could be the absolute greatest philosopher to ever walk the earth and be an absolute pauper emotionally and mentally. It doesn't provide anything. It doesn't give you anything. You can go down and walk the halls of greater collegiate institutions and see if the people that peddle this stuff have peace in their heart. See if they go home at night, see how they weather their storms. The problem is... It doesn't bear out. It's not justified. So he talks about the deficiency of philosophy. Number two, he talks about the design of it. So here's a rational question. We're going to be rational people, right? Let's be rational for a moment. Here's a rational question. If philosophy doesn't do what it's supposed to do, why do people do philosophy in the first place? What's the point of it? Other than grifting young people out of tuition money, what's the purpose of it? Why do they do it? Well, here's what philosophy is really designed to do. It's really not designed to understand who God is. You know why? Because God wrote a book. You'd think if a man really wanted to know whether there was a God or not, he might read his book. You'd think if a person really wanted to know whether there's a God or not, he might talk to the, I don't know, millions of people that know that they've personally met him by faith. So it's not really designed for that. So what is it designed for? Well, verse number 3 tells us. He says this, Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. Here's the two purposes of philosophy. Number one is to silence its critics. The whole design of it is to make you feel stupid for not believing in it, so you won't criticize it. It's one of the things I learned sitting in that classroom that day is uh, most of these kids were smarter than the professor that was teaching the class, but they had been bullied into believing that what they were raised to believe was foolishness in the first place. And the whole purpose of it is to basically barrage people with words, to beat them with words so that they never have to be challenged in the first place. It's a funny thing. This world ain't so hot on the idea of debate anymore. Have you noticed that? Ain't so interested in the idea of sitting and standing toe-to-toe and talking and arguing thoughts and perspectives out. We live in a day of censorship. We live in a day where anything's tolerated but intolerance, which is always defined by the intolerant people that are peddling tolerance. We live in a day where if you have a disparate viewpoint, then you are a criminal, you are a terrorist, and you are a treasonous individual. Why is that? Because it keeps people from asking uncomfortable questions. Philosophy at a fundamental level is meant to do this in human interactions. Don't you question me, you dumb hillbilly, because you don't believe what I believe. It's to silence its critics. Number two is to silence the conscience. He says, when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. You know, the real reason they don't want their perspectives tested is not because they're afraid of what you're going to think. It's because they're afraid of what they're going to think. They don't want to have to ask uncomfortable questions. You know, the most troubling question you can ask somebody is this. Do you have peace when you pillow your head at night? Amen. Do you know that if you died, you'd wake up in heaven? Right. It's a question that chills the unregenerate bones of a man. Because at the end of the day, he knows, I don't. I have no answers. I have no foundation. And so something, the devil had to have something to give men that could silence them. And here's what it basically is. It's the applause and agreement of the status quo. They say, well, everybody else believes this way, so it must be true. Has it ever dawned on you that everybody else is dumb? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a dumb world. What Rife with stupid people. Everywhere you look, people are imbeciles. You want to cast your lot in with that? I think I'd rather know who God is and what He says and settle my soul on his promises. So we see the design of philosophy, but notice the danger of it. Verse 4, he says this, For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. There's two big dangers with philosophy as a system of understanding who God is. Number one, it deceives the human heart. So far, it looks at Job, and he says, you've said your doctrine is pure. But what does that mean? We live in a world today that has resoundingly declared itself morally righteous. Doesn't matter how things change from day to day. Doesn't matter the fact that the people that are lionized and and have statues made out of them uh, today will become bigots tomorrow for the things that they say and believe. All that matters is that man has declared my doctrine is pure. Only problem is, I don't know who told you that you get to decide what doctrine and what pure is. See, here's the fundamental problem with philosophy. It's not designed to unveil and disclose truth. Rather, it's designed to placate the human heart. It's not brave enough and bold enough to look in the face of reality. And then they'll turn around and tell you, because you put your faith in the Word of God, that you're the one with your head in the sand. They're the ones that are brains in a jar on a shelf. They're too cowardly to be willing to face the reality that's around them. So they have to create fairy tales and fantasies of their own creation and making that have no root and no grounding in reality. Let me tell you something. If you're going to tell me that this book is a sham, you're going to have to say something about the millions of people that know it has changed their life. I I couldn't point you to millions of people that say, oh, I was was a broke down, messed up addict. I mean, I was laying in a cutter on the street and then glory to God, philosophy spoke to my soul and I got up and became a rational human being. Now, I know a lot of them that would say, well, I was was raised in that old hypocritical church and then I went to college and got enlightened by my ponytail professor and now all of a sudden I am super rational. And I've been through three marriages and my kids are messed up and I I don't know whether I'm going this way or that way, but thank God I'm rational. Right? Thank, Thank Kant that I'm rational. No, listen, you're going to have to tell me something about these people. You're going to have to tell me something about these people It's broke down, messed up in pieces, and, and, and God got them and put them back together. I ain't seen philosophy do that. Now, here's what philosophy does. It deceives the human heart. It makes you think just because you say it ferociously enough that it means your doctrine is pure. That's not, hey, listen, that's not pure. That's propaganda. You're propagandizing yourself to believe that you're right. Job said, my doctrine is pure. Well, if it's pure... Why do you have to defend it in the first place? But then notice the next thing he says. For thou hast said my doctrine is pure and I am clean in thine eyes. That's an interesting phrase. I don't know about you. I would think it would be up to the person you're talking to to decide whether you're clean in their eyes. But here's what philosophy seeks to do. It seeks to look and say, I don't really care how you feel about it. All I care is how I feel about it. And I have decided that you are okay with me. I have decided that you agree with me. I have decided that, and, and by the way, we see this living in the modern world. I have decided that everyone agrees with me, and if you disagree with me, it must be because you're in the minority and you're a bigoted, hateful individual. You are an intolerant, treacherous, lecherous individual and because you disagree with me, because I've decided I'm clean in your eyes. Here's the problem. It dulls the human heart. If you have already decided that not only are you right in your own eyes, but you're right in everybody else's eyes, how are you ever going to be corrected in anything in your life? Now, somebody might come along and say, well, you're not clean in my eyes. You're going to look at them and say, well, you're just ignorant and don't understand. You're not as enlightened as me. You've not been clued in yet that I am clean in your eyes. The whole design of it is to silence the conscience, to dull the human heart. It is a tool of Satan. And by the way, this is not to suggest that there has never been any pursuit of, of Christian intellectual thought that has been valid. You under, I'm talking about philosophy as a, as a pseudo-pagan cultural religious institution today. And that entity, the problem with it, it's not designed to give you answers. It's designed to shut up your questions, to keep you from asking yourself uncomfortable truths. Now, somebody's going to say, well, now, preacher, you've got us all discouraged this morning. The world's broken. We can't figure out who God is. Everybody's wicked and everybody's stupid. Where are we going to do now? Well, we'll close on that thought. No, we won't. (laughs) Because Zophar gives us a good answer. So now, wait a minute, Preacher. If God can't be fully and rightly understood just through looking around at creation, we can't look outwardly and understand Him. And we can't look inwardly and understand Him. We can't reach up through our own moral righteousness and get Him. And we can't reach down into the well of our experience and understand Him. preacher, how is a man ever going to understand God? Zophar gives a good answer to this. Look what he says in verse 5. But oh, that God would speak. You know how mankind comes to know God. (laughs) God who at sundry times. So the book of Hebrews says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners hath spoken unto us by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son whom He hath sent from heaven. I'll tell you how mankind knows God. God has spoken. He's spoken through the precious Word of God. And he's spoken through the incarnate Son of God, who is the Word incarnate. They're one and the same in nature. Uh, they may not be one and the same in corporeal existence, meaning that Jesus wasn't just a book walking around, uh, and that uh, you know, uh, up in heaven there's not a book seated at the right hand of God. He is an individual. He is God. He is God in the flesh. But meaning that they were never disconstant. They always agreed they're harmonious in nature in every way, shape, fashion, and form. You say, preacher, how could a man know God? Not through philosophy, not through intuition, but rather through revelation. He's spoken to us. And that tells me this. You want to know God? You're going to find him in this book. Notice what he says here. Oh, that God would speak. Wonder what he'd say if he spoke. What could we expect God to say? Now, this is at a time when the word of God has not been written down. But so far, he says, I would imagine there would be three things that God would say to us. Notice the first thing when the voice of God speaks in a man's heart, he speaks guilt to him. Verse number five, oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. This is the reason mankind does not want to go to the Word of God to learn about God in the first place. Because the first thing that God says when mankind comes to the Word of God is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no not one. Hey, they're all together evil. They're all together wicked. Their mouth is an open sepulcher. Uh, what you'll find when you go to the Word of God is that the whole world has been declared guilty before God, that every mouth may be stopped. And mankind, in his pride, stops at that point. Most lost people's interaction or at least their perspective of the word of God is that is a book of condemnation to tell them how wicked and awful and what sinners they are. They are half right. They are. They're half right. It is a book of condemnation. It is meant to show sinners that they're lost. Hey, how are you ever going to get a savior if you don't believe you're a sinner? And so, of course, that is part of the purpose of it. It's to show us our sin. We in and of ourselves don't think we're sinful. We think our doctrine is pure. We think we're clean in our eyes and everyone else's eyes. But when the Word of God speaks, it reveals that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. First thing it does, it speaks guilt to us. God opens His lips against us and shows us. But then here's the second thing it speaks, verse 6. Well, let's read verse 5 and 6. Oh, that God would speak. Well, what would he say? He'd open his lips against thee. Number two, he would show thee the secrets of wisdom that they are double to that which is. Notice what he says here. He says, whatever you think he is, he's double. You think he's wise? He's more wise than you think he is. You think he's holy? He's more holy than you think he is. You think he's righteous? He's more righteous than you think. You think he's loving? He's more loving than you think He is. You think He's wrathful towards unrighteousness? He's more wrathful than you think He is. In other words, here's the problem. Man at the very length and extent of his imagination can't even... Here's how the New Testament says it. The half has not been told. (laughs) That didn't start in the New Testament. All the way back in the book of Job, the Holy Ghost said, if you knew the truth of it, You'd find out that God's more than double what you could ever imagine Him to be. Number one, He speaks guilt to us. Number two, He speaks glory to us. Here's what the Word of God is meant to do. It's meant to show us how, how low we are and how high He is. How broken we are and how blessed He is. How, how, how sinful we are and how immaculate He is. I'll tell you this, when a sinner gets in the Word of God, and by the way, this don't end when you get born again, the more you read this book, Hey, you're going to find out, you know, sometimes I, I don't know if I'm going to say this right. I like to get stuff for free. It's one of my favorite things to do. And there's nothing tickles me more than to go through a drive through and open my bag and find that they put something extra in there. Now I know you're real spiritual and you pull around and you pay them for it. God bless you. Pay them for mine too. Cause I'm not pulling around. All is fair. Alright, they had their chance to get my order right. They have sure enough left things out enough. If they accidentally leave something in, I'm just going to count that the justice of God, alright? But I love it, man. I, love, I, open, I didn't order this apple pie. I don't even like apple pies. But I'm tickled to have this apple pie. feel like you got something, you know? You know, salvation is like that for the believer every day of their life that they dig into the Word of God. I mean, you knew, when you got saved, you knew you was getting forgiven, and you knew you was going to get a savior, and you knew you was going to go to heaven. But you didn't know all of a sudden you would be a justified child of God, thrice sanctified by the Holy Ghost, seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You didn't know you had a comforter or a companion to walk with you every step of the way, to lead you, to guide you, to exhort you, to correct you, and to encourage you when you needed it. You didn't know you was getting all that. And on and on it goes through the word of God. We just we just keep man, we keep opening the bag, and there's just more apple pies. Here's an apple pie, there's an apple pie, there's an apple pie. Everywhere you look, apple pies of the glory of God. He I'll tell you what he does when he speaks, he speaks glory. But then notice the last thing and I'm done. Now, stop and think about this. When we get up to this point, that's all good, but it ain't helped us. When the Word of God speaks, it looks at a sinner and says, you're so bad, and then it points to God and says, He's so good. It says, you're so broken, and He's so blessed. That's good, I guess. That's, I guess, but you know, maybe we'd rather not even know that in the first place. After all, that's really what philosophy's is about, is it's about keeping you from getting this far. But that's because it's not willing to go the next step. It speaks guilt to us and it speaks glory to us. But I like this next phrase. Know what he says, He would show thee the secrets of wisdom that they are double to that which is, know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Here's what He does. He speaks guilt to us and He speaks glory to us. Oh, preacher, I wish I could have that glory. I, I wish I wasn't so guilty. Well, here's what He does. He speaks grace to us. Hey, what He has exacted is less. Than what you deserve. Now I understand in the context of the book of Job why it doesn't say anything more than that. But don't you see in germ form you have a presentation of the concept of both mercy and grace? God is not giving you things you do, mercy is is God not giving you things you do deserve? Grace is God giving you things you don't deserve. We could call it God's unmerited favor at Christ's expense, right? Uh, the, the grace of God uh, that uh, Christ's riches, God's riches. I'll say it right here in a, f- a second. God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited. Favor. We have in germ form the concept here of the grace of God. I mean, let me tell you the blessed thing. Uh, when a sinner opens this book, he finds out how bad he is. And he finds out how good God is. But then it points him to the cross of Calvary and said, here is a hope and a bridge between man and God. Here is God manifest, robed in flesh, bearing your sin on the cross of Calvary. Here is the way that you go from your bad brokenness to His beautiful blessedness, and you can know Him for who He truly is. And the voice of God speaks to us. And by the way, that don't stop when we get born again. It still speaks grace to us. This trifold thing, this threefold thing that's going on, it still happens every day in your life. Every day that you open the Word of God, you're going to be reminded that though you're saved, though you're uh, positionally sanctified in the eyes of God, though that you are seated together with Him in heavenly places, that that old lost part of you that was lost before you got saved is just as rotten as it was before. Uh, You have a new man alive within you, but that old man is still wicked and vile as He always was, it'll speak guilt to you. Then it'll speak glory to you. It'll remind you how good and gracious that Jesus Christ is. That He has all things pertaining to life and godliness. That through His uh, promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. And then here's what it'll do. It'll point you to Calvary and say, now if you'll come and repent of those sins and come to the Lord, He has enough grace to make up the difference. I would say this morning, philosophy's a dead end. But I'm sure glad that faith in the Word of God and faith in Jesus Christ still works this morning. Now, don't hold your head down as a child of God when you walk out into this world. Don't don't let the devil bully you and berate you and embarrass you for being a child of God, for being a Bible believer. Instead, you hold your head high and you say, absolutely, I'm a Bible believer because I've found it to be true. It's changed my life. It's saved my soul. It's borne me through everything that I've faced. You're here today and you're lost. i just tell you this. You ain't going to find what you're looking for out in the world. You're only going to find it in this book. And if you here as a saved child of God have something in your life that you'd say, Preacher, I know it ought not be there, then why don't you let the Word of God that has already spoken guilt to you, that has already spoken glory to you, why don't you let it speak grace to you this morning? And why don't you come and get that thing right with the Lord? Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I invite you to come. I want to ask you to come for a couple reasons. One, if you are a saved person but you have a loved one that is in the bondage of of philosophy, of the pursuit of of peace and happiness through human rationale, these would be people like atheists and agnostics, people that would say, "Well, I just don't know if I can believe in it." Won't you come down and pray for it? They ain't gonna find what they need in the world's broken systems, in the rudiments of the world, through through wisdom which has already failed mankind. They're going to find it through the preaching of the cross. They're going to find it through the Word of God. Won't you find a place down here? Call their name out to the throne of grace. Say, now, Lord, let your Holy Spirit continue to work in their heart and mind. Maybe there's somebody here that say, Preacher, now, if I'm being honest, I'd have to admit that's me. I've been trying to do it through my own strength, through my own intellect. But I see this morning that I'm going to have to get born again to be a child of God. God dealt with my heart. I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. Please pray for me. Slip your hand up. I'll pray for you. I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or come to you or do anything that would embarrass you. i just pray for you.